0: Welcome to the Friday podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and this is a midweek master's episode. Two different segments today. I'm going to talk to Bob Crosby, the great golf historian, about the history behind four particular holes at Augusta National. We're going to talk about how they've evolved and what those evolutions mean. But first, I want to give some reflections on the pre-masters press conferences we've heard over the past few days. People said a lot of interesting and potentially significant stuff, so I thought I'd zero in on a few specific topics. First of all, the chairman of Augusta National, Fred Ridley, gave his very anticipated press conference on Wednesday, and there were a couple of highlights that I wanted to focus on. His first big announcement had to do with Augusta Municipal Golf Course, known locally as The Patch. Augusta National is, according to Chairman Ridley, supporting a joint partnership with The Patch, Augusta Technical College, and the First Tee of Augusta to, quote, usher in a new era for public golf in our city. There are three basic objectives here. First, Augusta Tech will start educational programs for future workers in the golf industry, and those programs will be linked to with the patch, and the first tee of Augusta. Second, the partnership will create what Ridley called an affordable pathway for anyone who wants to learn the game. And third, Augusta National will assist in renovating the patch and the first tee facility. This is really exciting news, not only for Augusta, but I think potentially for the golf world more broadly. Everything that Augusta National does ends up serving as a model for other clubs, courses, and organizations in the golf world. And that dynamic has not always been healthy. Just look at the influence Augusta National has had on golfers' expectations for maintenance and agronomy. That hasn't been a positive influence, I would say, on the sustainability or the environmental reputation of the game. But this partnership with Augusta Municipal, the First Tee, and Augusta Tech could be an enormously beneficial model for other wealthy, powerful organizations to follow. And I really hope they do. Either way, what happens with the patch should be a great story to track in the coming years, and we'll definitely keep up with it at the Friday. All right. The second part of Ridley's press conference that I wanted to pick out is his comments on the model local rule for the golf ball that the USGA and RNA recently proposed. Basically, this rule would allow individual tournaments like the Masters to implement a reduced flight golf ball, as you are no doubt aware Augusta National has had to make a tremendous number of changes over the past 25 years to keep up with distance gains at the elite male competitive level. The most recent of those changes was moving back the 13th tee 35 yards to restore some decision-making to that famous par 5. So I think almost everyone expects Ridley and Augusta National to support the model local rule and adopt the MLR ball when it comes out. But Of course, we were waiting to see what exactly Ridley would say about the matter, because what Augusta National does on this issue will be hugely, hugely consequential. And here's what he said. As the comment period remains open, we will be respectful of the process as the USGA and the RNA consider this important issue. We have been consistent in our support of the governing bodies, and we restate our desire to see distance addressed. Very simple, kind of vague. But he did get more explicit in answering a question from the press. He said, Our position has always been that we support the governing bodies. I think in a general sense, we do support the proposal, but because it's in the middle of the comment period, it could change. The whole purpose of the comment period is to take the input from the industry. So we will look at the final product and make a decision. But generally, we have always been supportive of the governing bodies. I've stated that we believe distance needs to be addressed. I think the natural conclusion is, yes, we will be supportive. Ridley also made a comment later on about how when he first played in the Masters himself in the late 1970s, the course was about 6,900 yards, and it was still around that distance when Tiger Woods won in 1997. Now the course is over 7,500 yards long. And he is aware of that problem. Undoubtedly, my takeaway here is that Augusta National will do what the USGA and RNA want to do with regard to the rules of golf Ridley's most important talking point was we are and have always been supportive of the governing bodies that I think is the North star for them. So if the model local rule comes through the comment period intact, I would assume that the masters will implement the new ball. To me, that means that the opponents of the rollback, most significantly the major equipment companies and the players on the PGA Tour who get paid by those companies, those opponents of the MLR will try to put their thumbs on the scale now and in the coming months. They don't want the MLR to go through because they know if it does, it will be put into effect by the Open, the US Open, and the Masters. And if those three tournaments go with the MLR, The PGA of America and the PGA Tour are going to fall in line. I don't think they have the clout to stand up to the USGA and RNA when those organizations have the backing of Augusta National Golf Club. I may be wrong about that, but I think that's just how things are in the golf world. That's where the real power is. Okay, moving on from Ridley's press conference, the other set of comments from the pre-tournament interviews that I wanted to address are from players about the newly lengthened 13th hole. I thought a lot of these were really interesting, especially the ones from Dustin Johnson and John Rahm. DJ's comments, which he made on Monday, got a fair amount of traction, I would say. The key quote was this. He said, Yeah, most likely I'll be laying up all four days. The tee was moved back 35 yards, and DJ says that that's going to cause him to default to laying up on the hole. This prompted a lot of people to complain. It was like, oh man, they they took all the excitement out of the hole. We want to see birdies. We want to see eagles. We want to see people going for the green. And if, if DJ doesn't go for the green, then who will? But I think it's important to pay attention to the rest of what DJ actually said. He said, I don't like to turn the ball over. It's not really my forte with the driver hitting a draw. To explain what he's saying here, he prefers to hit a fade off the tee, like a lot of players today. He hits that big knuckle fade with a driver. It's a stock shot. For the past number of years, the 13th hole did still demand a draw off the tee for the best results, but most of the top players were long enough to get around the corner on the hole with a three-wood. It's a lot easier to hit a draw with a modern 3-wood than it is with a driver. There are various reasons for that that I wouldn't be the best person to answer, but basically it has to do a lot, at least, with spin. The modern driver doesn't spin very much, and so a fade, which has generally more spin than a draw, is a little bit easier to keep in the air, whereas a draw is always in danger of kind of diving out of the air and turning into a snap hook with the modern spin model that the driver and that the ball have for the top players. So the 13th hole was still sort of counter to that tendency, but because players could get around that corner with a three wood, that was a go-to shot for a lot of them. And it was Dustin Johnson's go-to shot. I believe he'd take a three wood and turn it over a bit. The three wood has more loft. It produces a little more spin, a draw with a three wood for these players is a little bit more reliable. Well, now the 13th hole is long enough so that guys can't take that shortcut to get around the corner and give yourself a good chance of hitting the green and two, you need to hit a driver and you need to draw it. So guess what? DJ can't hit that shot. You should be rewarded for being able to hit a variety of shots. You can't just expect to hit one shape off the tee and be able to go for every par five green and two. So the criticism of the lengthening of the hole based on DJ's comments today is baloney what he's really saying is i don't have that shot and this is one of the rare occasions where not being able to work the ball both ways with the driver is going to cost him and to be clear i'm not criticizing dj i don't get the impression that he was complaining about this state of affairs i'm more addressing the comments about what dj said he shouldn't be able to necessarily attack this hole if he can't hit that shot with the driver And he's maybe fine with that, right? In general, that power fade works just fine for him. But in this case, he can't get around that corner unless he draws it with a driver. And since he can't hit that shot, that's coming back to bite him in this case. The other comments on 13 that I found really interesting were from John Rahm. Now, Rahm is another guy, by the way, who plays a stock fade off the tee and has a hard time hitting a draw with the driver, I've seen him struggle a fair amount on 13 in the past, but as usual, he had really interesting things to say on the subject that weren't necessarily just from his own selfish point of view. He said this, I'm not opposed to the change. I think you're going to see a lot more layups, obviously. If you don't quite hug the left side, you're going to have such a long iron in that a lot of people will choose to lay up, but there's still going to be more so a risk reward aspect to it. Because if you hit the green and give yourself an eagle chance, it's going to matter a lot more, maybe, than it did in the past. This is all music to my ears, but especially the part about maybe needing to hug the left side of the hole in order to have a less terrifying chance of going for the green in two. The left side of the 13th hole is guarded by the tributary of Ray's Creek, and that hazard has basically become irrelevant in the 21st century. In the original design, the whole idea was that if you challenged the water, you could cut off some distance on the hole and give yourself a flatter lie and a real chance of hitting the green with your second shot. If you bailed out to the right, you would have a long way in and you'd have a very scary side hill lie that would make your ball move right to left, which is not the shape you want going into this green. But starting with equipment advances about 25 years ago, that strategy started to go away. Players could just blast it up the right and they could hit it so far that they would still have a short second shot into the green. The angle no longer mattered. Augusta tried to address that problem by planting a bunch of trees on the right side and making the hole narrower, but the strategic spirit of the hole was gone. Now, what John Rahm is saying is that the value of hugging that left side near the hazard might be back, and as a big-time golf nerd, that is very exciting to me. Speaking of big time golf nerdery, I'm going to talk to Bob Crosby about how a few specific holes at Augusta National have evolved over the years and how those changes represent a tricky philosophical balance that the club has had to strike as the host of the Masters. That's right after this break. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom fitted and custom built equipment. Their extensively trained master fitters provide an in depth, data driven tour level fitting process and have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, as well as 60 plus brands. They also use industry leading technology like Trackman and Sam Puttlab and they build to the tightest tolerances in the industry. Club Champions fittings produce real results for every level of player, including an average of 22 yard increases off the tee and an average of 10 yard improvements in dispersion. I've gone through Club Champion fittings myself and I can tell you that one of the big benefits of a fitting like this is that it just gives you confidence in your equipment. If you're anything like me, you're a bit of a tinkerer. Right, you When you play poorly, you sort of blame it on your equipment and you start looking for other options. You look for a new putter head shape. You look for a new shaft for your driver or for your irons. You maybe even go looking through eBay for something that you played when you were 13 years old in search of some kind of, you know, lost skill that you had back then with a particular really small headed three wood or something like that. Well, going to a Club Champion fitting sort of stops that process because you know you've confirmed that this equipment is good for you, and that confidence really means everything. You know that if, if you're having trouble, you need to work on your technique. It's not the equipment uh, because this equipment is perfectly suited for you when you go through a fitting process like this. So fried egg listeners, this is the deal that Club Champion is offering. Right now, you can use the code egg to get 50% off the cost of your club champion fitting with the purchase of a club. That's code fried egg, all one word. All right, back to the episode. All right, Bob Crosby, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Garrett. Great to be here.
0: So I'm excited to talk to you today because first of all, it's been too long and I always enjoy our conversations. And second of all, because we're discussing one of my favorite topics, which is the architectural history of Augusta National. What this golf course was originally and how it has evolved are so fascinating to me. And I thought a good way to bring that across to listeners would be to select a few different holes and dig into the history of each of them. So you and I talked a little before this, we chose four holes to focus on, and those are three, seven, eight, and 10. And we chose those holes not because they're famous, but because each of them represents something about the evolution of the course, about the philosophy of architecture and renovation that has defined what the course has become overall. So why don't we start with the par four third, which is one of my favorite holes on the golf course. Could you just describe the hole for me just to kick things off if people aren't super familiar with it? You know, it doesn't necessarily always star on the coverage of the Masters. So what is this hole, basically?
1: Yeah, the the, the third hole is, uh, is uh, the least changed hole at Augusta National. And I think uh, the reasons why it is the least changed are as interesting as the reason why other holes have been changed. It is a short par four, as everyone knows. Uh, even from the members tees, you're hitting lofted approach shots into it, to a very small but crowned green, which offers terrifying chances at, uh, at a birdie and uh, the likelihood for those of us less talented of a bogey. One of the things that I think that strikes me about the, the, the why that hole has survived in its current state for so long is something that Tom Doak mentioned recently about the changes he made to his memorial course in Houston, which is that he tried very hard to make sure that the middle of the greens, that is to say the safe shot areas, had some sort of undulation or contour in them that made them less safe. And I think that's why the third hole works so well. It's slightly crowned. You're putting downhill to most pin locations, which is scary and lightning fast. Trying to hit at the pins is probably not a good idea because of the the size of the green, just a wonderful hole all around. Um, and uh, there are good reasons for why it has not undergone, uh, or at least undergone very, very few changes. I think Fazio redid some of the fairway bunkers in 02, but other than that, essentially it's the hole that McKenzie and Jones put on the, put on the ground in, uh, uh, in 1932-03. The other hole I would like to talk about, uh, I think it has a wonderful end story to it, and that is the eighth hole. One of my favorite par fives in the world, Cliff Roberts, uh, in, uh, in, in the mid-1950s, uh, because of line-of-sight issues with galleries and also gallery flow around the green, uh, decided to take out a lot of the McKenzie features, which were essentially several mounds running upside uh, up both sides of the green, including a large mound in the front of the green, front left of the green and replaced those mounds with this awful, awful circular green, uh, sort of a saucer-shaped green that shocks the offenses every time you see even a picture of it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the great stories of Augusta National, and this was not a coincidence, not long after Cliff Roberts' passing in 1977, 6, 7, I think?
0: 77, yes. 77. September 77. 77.
1: Uh, Byron Nelson uh, and Joe Finger were uh, retained to restore the green to the original McKenzie design. As far as I know, that is the first instance of someone restoring a green to its historical initial form, at least on any important course I know of, in America which was, I think, uh, uh, both uh, bold and courageous on the part of Augusta National. And I I think it has uh, paid enormous dividends since it was restored in the late 1970s. So uh, great news there on on the eighth hole.
0: Well, why don't we talk about the third hole a little bit more, And then get to some details on the eighth hole as well. I think there's probably more to explore on each hole. You've given us a basic, you know, shape of the history of each hole. Now, the third hole today is a short par four to some of the modern professionals. It's almost drivable, but very few choose to attempt to drive it for a variety of reasons. But basically, this hole is a two valley hole. You hit your drive over a valley, and you if you are at the top of the hill in the middle of the fairway, then you hit your approach over a valley. You mentioned that the bunkers have been changed. I actually looked this up, and the cluster of bunkers replaced a big bunker that used to be in the same location, and it was actually Jack Nicklaus who suggested that in the early 80s, and then Bob Cup, Nicklaus's design partner at the time, I believe, Executed the work and was the architect of record for that work. Fazio did make some changes, as you mentioned, uh, later on in the early 2000s, but they were a little more subtle. But that's basically all that has changed about the hole. And it's fascinating to me to walk around the course today and look at the members' tees and the championship tees and see how different they are on every other hole on the golf course, except for three where they are not different. This hole was 350 yards in 1934, and it's 350 yards today. So what do you think allowed this hole to stand the test of time in this way, Bob?
1: I I think it's the green. I mean, I I think, as as I mentioned, uh, the the place where you want to play safe, i.e. hit a wedge shot to the middle of the green— uh, doesn't leave you. It leaves you uh, essentially downhill putts on a lightning fast green. Trying to play for pins is a fool's errand. It's uh, they are very hard to reach, and if you are off the green, recovery shots uh, under some fairly it's uh, fairly steep hills and one bunker are enormously difficult. It has withstood the the new power game beautifully, and in many respects, I think. Dope probably feels this way is something of a template for how to attack the power game today with shorter holes.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. And, you know, and, and part of it, in addition to the green, which is obviously defended the hole very well from the beginning. There's also the factor of that Valley in front of the green where depending on pin position, you really don't want to be. So if you're trying to drive the green, you have to really think about it because you don't want to be long of this green. And you also, in many cases, do not want to be in that Valley short of the green left where your ball will end up. If it's not exactly precise, rolling perfectly onto the green. And so it motivates, I think some more cautious play where you do see players in the masters laying up to that, to the top of that Hill in the fairway, with a long iron or something like that and taking that full wedge into the green because they just don't like anything that'll happen if they miss the green, sort of pin high or past the pin.
1: Yeah, I agree. The, the, two, the two choices off the tee for pro-type players, there's one lay back at the top of that ridge, but the second, and that people have trying this, or bomb it to the right um, and then come in and avoid the worst of the little valley in front of the green that way now i think tiger tried that a couple 3 years ago and others have too and he ended up in the woods uh, on the right which all you know undid his strategy but still that is that, that's but it's that you're even thinking that way makes it a very interesting hole
0: you mentioned that the 8th hole is one of your favorite par 5s in the world why is that
1: it is almost well it is classically strategic it's almost elegantly strategic in the sense that there is a very, very large bunker in the landing area. I know some of the players these days hit it over it. But there's a very large bunker right center of the fairway. Because of the massive mound left front of the green, uh, the place you want to leave your drive ideally is as close to that right side bunker as you can, if if you aren't able to fly it which narrows what might appear to be a fairly wide driving area to a fairly narrow one in the sense that if you want to go for the green your next shot, you've got to play around to the right of that massive mound front of the green. Uh, it's, just, it's just a beautifully elegant little strategic hole. Not little, a big, hard uphill <laughs> hole, um, at which I have come to respect the more I've seen it.
0: And then the green design is so daring. Weird, even, especially if you look at the original green and its surrounds, which I think were probably a little bit more abrupt than they are today or have been since Byron Nelson and Joe Finger restored the green from memory and with a few photos. It's it it's it's just strange, isn't it? I mean, those big mounds on either side of the green, they just sort of jut out of the land.
1: They do, and they're very, very hard to chip from. The green itself is remarkably narrow. It's deep and very narrow. And if I might just make a comment about McKenzie's original greens, a lot of his greens originally had these long fingers. Uh, Any number of them had had these odd, bizarre shapes, but they all seemed to involve these long tongues and fingers. And if you put pins in these fingers, and eight is nothing but one long finger, there's very little leeway for bailing out left or right. You've got to go right at it. And um, there's a big debate these days about whether angles matter in, in strategic golf architecture. If the idea is that you should bail out to the middle of the green and take your two putts from there as a long-term strategy for lower scoring. McKenzie's original greens, uh, like Doke's idea at Memorial Golf Course, sort of defeat that idea. In some greens, I'm not sure where the middle of the green is. Um, because of the odd shapes, for example, the ninth green, the fourth green, um, uh, other greens, uh, that just with these sort of odd shaped where you could tuck pins in places where you shouldn't expect a, to two-putt to if you're in the wrong part of the green. So the, eight, the eighth is, is, is a nice representative of that long, narrow, finger-type green that I think featured uh, either alone or in combination with other features and other greens.
0: And this was something that McKenzie sort of moved toward at the very end of his career. Because if you look at some of his earlier greens at, say, Meadow Club or Cypress Point, they are simpler. There are mm-hmm. some complexities to those greens, but they're very much simpler than the greens that he built later at Pasatiempo and Augusta National. Where his green started to take on these really weird amoeba shapes with these little fingers that went out between bunkers and just kind of wandered in unexpected directions. And in fact, on the third hole, the original third hole, one of the subtle changes that was made early on is that one of these fingers that used to be there on the front right portion of that green got pushed back Mm -hmm. by, I believe, Perry Maxwell And so a lot of the greens, including the seventh, which we'll talk about later, just have these little jutting portions that went out in unexpected directions. And and they're just, I don't know, you know, that that seems to be something that he was looking at at the end of his career as maybe a way to push his design experimentation, just trying these different green shapes. Do Do you think that's do you think that's valid?
1: I think, I mean, I think of it in slightly different terms. I think of it in terms of him forcing players to choose angles into greens, Mm. to position themselves for the right angles into, into greens, because pins could be put in places that were so unbelievably unforgiving. And unless you hit the perfect shot, you could be, you know, put in a position where you just can't get up and down. Which is, by the way, sort of true of eight. I mean, if you miss wide left or right on eight, uh, getting up and down from those mounds that, that, uh, that, that run up both sides of that green is very, very difficult.
0: Now, to be more specific about the change that Clifford Roberts made to the eighth green, he took out the big mounds and those mounds are massive. And so it was an incredibly dramatic change. To just take out those mounds and essentially turn the green into a pancake and the story goes that the change was so ungainly looking that at the 1957 masters augusta national actually put up a sign saying this change is temporary <laughs> you know what this looks like right now is temporary and so it's kind of silly looking but i believe he did it to enhance spectator views am i right about that
1: the I mean, sight lines and also a, a fan flow around the green. The the, the green um, is up fairly close to the ninth tee. And I think that there were some issues then and still to some extent now uh, in terms of getting people through that area down the ninth fairway.
0: I think this represents something that Augusta National has battled with or tried to thread the needle of from the beginning. You have, on the one hand, the responsibility to preserve this great architecture by Alistair McKenzie and Bobby Jones, and you have, on the other hand, the responsibility to put on the Masters Tournament and allow it to be a great patron experience, as they would put it, and to be a significant championship golf test. And so I think that this represents some of that tension, right? Clifford Roberts was looking to enhance the spectator experience here, but it, it came at the, at the cost of the architecture. So it's an, it's an interesting change in that way. But what I find really fascinating about what you're saying about the eighth whole work that happened after Roberts's death is that it was one of the first instances of true restoration, and so you re- you really haven't found any earlier instances of. of that. I, I,
1: I will confess, I haven't looked hard, but I don't <laughs> know the the whole idea of restoring historic golf courses is not that old. I mean, it dates maybe to the nineteen nineties or something. I, I don't, you know, Doke was one of the first to do it. I think at Garden City, but maybe there are some that are earlier. But it it is not that old an idea. What the motives were for Augusta National to do it on eight, I, I really don't know, but I'm certainly happy they did what they did. Augusta is unique you, you're right. Augusta is trying to thread a very small needle between hosting a major golf tournament and preserving McKenzie's and Jones intent for the design on the golf course, and it is a it is a it is a uh a source for ongoing arguments uh, every spring. And uh, I have to admit, I find them, I enjoy them very much. <laughs> but you're right. And I, you know, we, we can quibble with decisions made, but it is, it's, it, those are tough calls. Those are tough calls.
0: And it's easy to critique some of the changes that have been made to the original architecture for the sake of championship golf and patron desires. But one thing that struck me when I was walking around Augusta National this past week is that a great deal of the great architecture is still intact, has been preserved. It doesn't have to be that way. I think that they could have eliminated a lot more of it and not come in for a whole lot of mainstream criticism, but there's still quite a bit of pretty radical stuff out there. And so it's it's tantalizing in that way where the club has clearly, you know, put some resources into preserving certain features but at the same time has also been willing to change other features for the sake of of some of these, you know, modern imperatives.
1: It it's for that reason that Augusta National can both be my favorite golf course and the course that infuriates me the most. <laughs> <laughs> um Jones, and we can talk about this in a minute, but Jones and McKenzie saw them, well, at least Jones, I think, saw himself as conducting an experiment at Augusta National, that they were going to push the envelope. And that envelope pushed up against, and still is pushing up against, many of the expectations that professional golfers have of a golf course. F- fighting that fight Since 1934 has been, I think, one of the central themes of Augusta National.
0: That's well said. And let's get into sort of an instance of that. The seventh and 10th holes at Augusta. Maybe you could just tell me about those holes, what they originally were, and assume that people don't know or haven't seen the pictures of those original greens, Because I think that if everybody saw those pictures, that they would sort of be shocked at how different those holes were in 1934. So 7 and 10, what were those holes in the early 30s? S-
1: 7, 7, eri- was well, still as well, now it's not a short par 4. Now I think it's 460-something yards. 7 was designed to be a short par 4. Uh, it was supposed to imitate some of the playing features of the 18th hole at St. Andrews, the home hole, uh, including a, a small sort of valley of sin, It had a large tongue on the right of the green that went up to a small plateau and carried across perpendicular to the line of play. Based on the photos I've seen, it looks like the green fell off fairly severely from right to left. But it was a hole that, even in the 30s, a lot of players could come close to driving, which was the motivation, I think, for changing it. Uh, Horton Smith, who won the first Masters, lodged complaints with Cliff Roberts and Bob Jones, that he and other players were driving the green in some cases, and that something ought to be done about it. So I, it was a, it was complaints from the pros that I think motivated changes to seven. As to 10, I mean, some of the s- similar notions apply there too. 10 was also a fairly short par four, straight downhill, a large, magnificent bunker to the left of the green, which is still mostly there. But the green, um, it was maybe 40 yards ahead or back towards the tee of where it is now in a small valley. The strategy on the hole would have been to keep the ball up on the right to the extent you could to open the green up. Um, that's very hard to do on that sloping downhill fairway, which wants to feed balls down into the left. So that, that it, it, was, it was, again, kind of an elegant strategic golf hole. Uh, also, beautiful to boot, uh, that uh, I think, uh, although I don't have any specific documentation on it, that I'm, I'm guessing was seen, seen to be too short and too easy for professional players.
0: I think that the green also had a hard time draining because it really was in a saddle next to that famous bunker that is still there on the 10th hole. But what's interesting about what you're saying is that the strategy of the hole was basically the opposite of what it is today. Today players are trying to get their hole to get their ball rather to run down to the left and give them a better angle into that green and cut off some of the distance of that approach. But back in the early 30s that hole was about trying to stay to the right and if you caught that little speed slot to the left you would find yourself hitting this pitch over the famous bunker to a green in a saddle on the other side, which must have been a very, very difficult shot. So kind of a funky hole and, and quite different from what it is today.
1: Yeah, there is a little plateau on the right side of the fairway before it falls off down to the left, where I, I, I've always thought uh, would be the ideal place to leave a drive or a layup shot of some sort to approach the, green, the old green uh, from there.
0: So in both cases, Perry Maxwell came in in the late 30s and moved the 7th and 10th greens back to a hillside on the other side of a little valley, I guess, uh, in the case of 10 and a hillside just behind the original green on 7. But essentially, in both cases, he was creating a naturally elevated green on a little hillside and lengthening the holes and the holes are what they are today. Today, seven is this green that's kind of benched in to a hillside with bunkers all around the green, sort of a shallow green and one of the smaller ones on the course. And then on 10, the green is perched sort of on this hill that falls off severely to the left. So elevated Perry Maxwell greens for both of these holes that made them longer made them sort of stout par fours which which they are today so what do you think was the idea or the philosophy behind those changes
1: there is not a lot there has not been a lot written about what motivated maxwell to make the changes uh i've i have uh dug into some of the newspaper accounts and and um it is it, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on first i think maxwell felt and i i don't know he must have gotten this from people at augusta national that the attempt to make augusta national a Lynxy type golf course just simply didn't work not not only for the pros playing the masters but as you noted for some drainage reasons and other reasons, the Georgia red clay does not percolate; it sheet drains. And uh, Mackenzie didn't have a lot of experience on that sort of turf and and uh, and soil, uh, so that might have been part of it. But I think there was also a very clear attempt by by Maxwell to unlinkify a lot of those holes. There, are, and I've always been curious about Jones's reaction to that. And I found something the other day, which both sort of confirmed and sort of troubled me at the same time, where Jones, and this is from 1938, and this is a newspaper account of what was going on with Maxwell at Augusta National, and the the account reads as follows, although Bob Jones felt that the original job done by the late Alistair McKenzie was beyond reproach, he has yielded to the wishes of others, and the changes made in 1937 and this summer, 1938, by Perry Maxwell have eliminated a number of original features. I think, I think the importance of the masters by the late 1930s was such an, an importance in the sense that the club club's financial future depended on the revenues from the masters, at least during the Great Depression. I think the importance of that event for the viability of the club was such that I think Jones, notwithstanding his, his, his conviction that McKenzie's design was beyond reproach, I think he realized uh, to continue to make the tournament appealing to professional players that changes had to be made. And there's a bit of tragedy in that. I think Jones was fully aware that a lot of the things that he and McKenzie had thought were important had to be subsumed to those higher goals for the golf course. I think, for example, his shock at the changes that were made to the 8th hole, he was appalled by them, but uh, ended up living with them. I think Maxwell's changes in 37 and 38 set the tone for further changes made by Robert Trent Jones 10 years later. Um, I think the, the 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 idea was to preserve the course as a challenging site for a major golf tournament, um, and part of that was because at least in the first ten years or so, the club needed to have that tournament conducted there as a, as a revenue source. Later on, they didn't. The revenue source was, I guess, irrelevant. They had other sources of revenue. One of the things that I hope historians do a better, and I maybe should try to do it. Is that Maxwell, in a, several newspaper accounts, talks about in 37 and 38 reducing a lot of the mounding on the golf course, which had been an attempt to make it feel more linksy. That was certainly the case on uh, on uh, on seven. Uh, it was certainly the case to some extent on ten. What is interesting is that you compare old photos from the 30s with photos from the 50s or 60s, and clearly mounding in any number of spots is lower and less dramatic. The record of what exactly Maxwell did with all, with all that mounding is at best unclear, um, but I, my, I suspect that he made changes. His exchanges to Augusta National were in many cases small, subtle, and unrecorded unless there are things in the Ar- Augusta National Archives I'm, not, I'm unaware of. Uh, but it was a big change. And and, uh, and and I think the changes since then, with the exception, again, of Byron Nelson and Joe Fingers' rest- restoration of the Eighth Green, that have continued more or less at pace since.
0: Something that's so curious about the identity of Augusta National as a work of architecture overall is that it started out as this is what Jones and McKenzie intended at least as an inland links as an experiment with trying to create a real links course on an inland site today. I think Augusta national is known and comes across as the ultimate parkland course. And so I wonder if these changes by Perry Maxwell in the late 1930s, and by the way, one of the ironies here is that Perry Maxwell created one of the most authentic Lynx golf courses inland in America in Prairie Dunes. And so it's not as if he was the sort of Parkland uh, hack job man coming in and, and, and taking out all the Lynx stuff. He was asked to do this and he did it. But do you think that the late 30s is sort of the time when Augusta National started that slow transition? away from its original vision as the ultimate inland links course and toward the Parkland major championship test that it's known as today.
1: I I, I couldn't agree more. I I think that Maxwell set the direction for subsequent changes. By the way, speaking of prairie dunes, Maxwell is quoted in a couple of newspaper articles in 1937 as saying the land and the terrain at Augusta is not suitable as a setting for a Lynx course. However, the course I I designed at Prairie Dunes is suitable as a Lynx venue. Um, So he made a clear distinction there, and I think this has to do, again, with the turf and the terrain at Augusta, uh, that it just didn't work very well there, and that Jones's and McKenzie's grand experiment maybe was conducted in the wrong locale.
0: Do you think it's possible he was right about that? I feel like I'm playing devil's advocate here, but do you think it's possible that the idea of building an inland links on this property was just somewhat wrongheaded from the beginning?
1: I want to defend Jones and McKenzie in this sense, replicating the old courses, St. Andrews or Muirfield or other links courses I think, was probably unachievable in any event, given the nature of the terrain at Augusta National. However, I think that they were th- their ambitions extended beyond that. I think they were actually trying to push the concepts of strategic golf architecture to a place they had never been before. I, as I've, I've, I think I've said before, I, it's sort of strategic golf course architecture, as we used to say in the 60s. On acid. And some of the green contours, the green shapes, some of the shots he's asking players to hit to very, very narrow, pinnable areas are nuts. I mean, we think of them as nuts today. But I think that it was part of a larger part of this experiment. Jones was very clear. He thought this was an experiment that might have, but for the intervention of the Great Depression, World War II, we can think of other counterfactuals, might have set golf architecture in a very different direction. Uh, And that's that's my regret uh, about uh, Augusta National, because following on in the 40s is Robert Trent Jones, Dick Wilson, and some others. To some extent, we didn't start reverting back to some of the, the ideas that McKinsey and Jones were trying to do at Augusta National until sometime in the 1990s, maybe even later with Dope, Coor, Crenshaw, and some others. And I'm not sure even they were prepared to be as radical as McKinsey was at Augusta National. Uh, he had the ideal uh, owner at that point, Jones, uh, to, 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 to try to carry out some of those experiments. A lot of them have been domesticated. Greens now are very oblong and consistent. Uh, the contours are sort of leveled out. Undulations are muted now. Um, it is much more a Parkland course, but God, it's sad to see the experiment go away because it, at one point in time, it was, uh, it was uh, a remarkable, remarkable effort. The thing I wonder and maybe there's just no good answer to this, is that a lot of the modern designs by, you know, living golf architects in trying to figure out how to design shorter courses, i.e. less than 7,400 yard courses, that will also stand up to the pros. It strikes me that a lot of the ideas they're experimenting with are ones that McKenzie tried at Augusta National. These little fingerlets on the greens, odd shapes, bumps and humps, undulations. One thing pros hate to do is hit off uneven lies. All of that, or are, 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 all those things, are being tried, and I think somewhat successfully in trying to combat the power game of the pros. So I wonder. I wonder. Maybe we've come full circle. Maybe, maybe some of the things, maybe some of the features that McKenzie had built at Augusta, really do work. Now, the pros will hate him, and they said they hated him back in 1937. There is, a, there is a persistent, enduring conflict in the evolution of golf, not just in architecture, but frankly also the rules, between a group who want to see golf become a fair, more rational game, i.e., that's usually professional players, and those who want to see golf as a more interesting difficult game that involves luck and randomness uh, that one has to learn to deal with. McKenzie and Jones, I think, came down on the side of more interesting, unpredictable golf courses, less predictable golf courses, I guess is a better way to put it. And they were, I think, at some point along the way, overrun by the professional perspective which is they need to be more free uh, fair and rational and that evolution begins at augusta national with the arrival of perry maxwell on the scene it, but but that clash continues today with modern architects clashing against people who want fair golf courses that sort of thing and it's it's uh it's uh a clash that I think will always be with golf and God bless both sides of that. It's, you know, there, it's, it's, it's uh, it's a wonderful energetic thing to follow as things p- play out.
0: Well, Bob, thank you for coming back on the podcast. Really appreciate talking to you as always and enjoy master's week. Thanks very much. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was produced and edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. One quick note if you haven't visited the Fried Egg Pro Shop lately, we have a lot of new stuff in there. We have, in particular, some seasonal, perhaps green hued merchandise on a theme that might be relevant to this particular time of year, including a putter head cover with a certain bunker design that is just really, really cool looking. A lot of this stuff is going pretty quick. It's flying off the shelves or flying out of the house where we store all our merchandise, uh, to to put it more specifically. So if you're interested in any of that and you want to support The Fried Egg with a Pro Shop purchase, then go to ProShop.TheFriedEgg.com and check out what we have in there. It's a a full range of stuff. You know, you can get your usual t-shirts and golf shirts and all that kind of stuff, as well as head covers. We also have an extensive print shop with some beautiful photography from Andy Johnson and Cameron Hurtis of various great courses that we love. So, again, proshop.thefriedegg.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with a Masters Recap Pod at the beginning of next week.